Welcome to the 238th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. In the fall of 2019, U.S. Secretary of Agriculture Sonny Perdue spoke at the World Dairy Expo in Madison, Wisconsin. Farmers in the agricultural media were interested in what Purdue had to say, given that the dairy industry is in the midst of a devastating economic crisis, with small and medium-sized farms going out of business at a record pace. Much of the dairy industry's problems can be traced directly to massive overproduction of milk by a handful of mega operations, which gobble up market share with facilities that house tens of thousands of cows. As these operations spread, local communities that relied on the presence of many small and medium-sized diversified farming operations are simply fading away. So what did Secretary Purdue say? Well, he made it clear he was just fine with the direction of the dairy industry, which in many ways parallels the trends in agriculture in general. In America, the big get bigger and the small go out, he said with an air of inevitability. Purdue's comments echo the words of his predecessors. Almost five decades ago, Nixon-era Secretary of Agriculture Earl Butts told farmers to get big or get out and backed up his words with policies that helped usher in an age of mega factory farms and consolidation of the agricultural industry in general. The get big or get out philosophy isn't just restricted to government officials. University of Minnesota economist Marin Bozik has told state lawmakers that 80% of Minnesota's dairy farms are doomed to go out of business and should not be offered help. That this is all just the invisible hand of the free market at work and that it's good for society is part of a concerted communication strategy. As LSP policy organizer Johanna Ruprecht says, an enormous amount of corporate ag power is rooted in the mere fact that it's gotten so many people to buy into the myth that the corporate way is the only way. Such control of the public narrative is an effective way to alter agricultural policy and economics while remaking the look of the entire rural landscape. Mega dairy operations, for example, not only do not require rural Main Street businesses to survive, but they have become major water and air pollution threats. Ironically, another powerful narrative message being spread by corporate agribusiness and its boosters in government, academia, and the media is that there is room for all sizes of farming operations. The big boys and the smaller farms can all serve different market niches, according to this sales pitch. But agricultural economist Richard A. Levins says dairying is a prime example of the rising tide lifts all boats strategy springing leaks. It didn't work for pork and poultry farmers and it's not working in the dairy business. In fact, a rising tide of milk production is simply swamping the smaller operations at an incredible rate. Meanwhile, the big get bigger, creating a situation where someday we may be counting the number of dairies in this country on our fingers. Levins, who's a professor emeritus in the Department of Applied Economics at the University of Minnesota, as well as a dairy policy advisor to national farmers, recently spoke at a pair of land stewardship project meetings. These events brought together farmers and others to discuss how to grapple with the current farm crisis, particularly as it relates to dairying. Numerous policy reforms were discussed, including tackling consolidation in the processing and marketing sector, placing a moratorium on the building of mega dairies, and putting in place a type of reverse volume premium to cut overproduction of milk while ending the unfair market access advantage mega operations currently have. I caught up with Dr. Levins to talk about the idea that big box agriculture is an inevitable result of natural economic evolution. Such a narrative is not only harmful, but false, he says. As Levins makes clear, people created this situation and people can change it. 
He started out providing some history behind the get big or get out mantra. When I very first started in this field, back as a student even, the Secretary of Agriculture under Presidents Nixon and then Ford was a fellow named Earl Butts. He was pretty uh, flashy, shall we say. He finally got forced out for his inappropriate jokes and other carryings-ons. But he's, he's famous for a phrase, get big or get out, that has guided a certain type of farm policy and free market, what I'd call ideology, ever since. Now, old Earl's gone on to his great reward, but the phrase lives on. Uh, Sonny Perdue, uh, his heir apparent, uh, said pretty much the same thing at Dairy Expo, of all places, in Wisconsin just a year or so ago. Now, that's a long time in between, probably pushing 50 years. I can't get the exact date, certainly 40. But the agriculture that those two gentlemen were talking about was, it was night and day. You can't, one couldn't recognize the other. And let me give you an example, Brian. In around the time of Earl Butts and Nixon, mid-70s maybe, uh, and I was just getting started, I was a kid, but they did, just back then, the way they do now, they kept track of dairy herd size, dairy farm size, by the number of cows, and they had uh, categories of 0 to 20 cows, 20 to 40, 40 to 60, 60 to 80, 80 to 100, and over 100. Over 100 cows was the biggest one that they could even keep track of. They still do that today, only instead of over 100, it's over 5,000. Now, I want all the mathematicians out there to get your calculators out, but that's 50 times larger in one career for what constitutes a large dairy. This is inconceivable, but you see the difference. You go from a 100-cow dairy to a 30,000-cow dairy. It's not going from a small dairy to a big dairy. It's more like going from a rural hardware store to a Home Depot. Hmm. And that's why I call these new dairies big box dairies rather than big dairies, because it's a better analogy. Explain that a little bit more, how we got to that big box dairy situation. Where you know, Is it just natural? This is kind of the way the evolution goes in, in marketing and economics and in even agricultural technology? Or is this just, it's just another version of what we see kind of in capitalist society in general, I guess? Well, this is something that's kind of crept up on us because in the 70s when Earl Butts was talking to a dairy farm, for example, he said it to all farms, but to a dairy farm, says get big or get out, probably talking about adding another 20 or 30 cows to an 80-cow farm, for example. Couldn't have imagined a 20,000-cow farm. But now we'd be taking that 80-cow farm and say, well, you need to add 20,000 cows. Well, this is impossible. The 80-cow dairy is not going to borrow that kind of money. Instead, we have a type of farm that's primarily, not always, but primarily funded by outside investors Mm. that take advantage of expensive but available technology, but mostly just loads and loads of capital. More than could be more than can be provided by rural banks, even if they only did one dairy and concentrated all in one place, and then come into a market. But that market is what we call a fixed demand. That just because somebody brings another five or ten thousand cows into a market doesn't mean people drink more milk. So when they come in, they replace an equivalent number of what I'd call mom-and-pop dairies, traditional dairies, family-sized dairies, whatever you want to call them. Mm -hmm. 
the ones that are best for every study shows for rural economies, for the environment, for food security, they get replaced wholeheartedly because the game is no longer efficiency. The game is market access. Who will take your milk? There's so many processing plants. You know, milk doesn't go straight from a cow to your refrigerator. Milk has to go to a processing plant. There's only so many of those. If somebody offers a better deal on 10 or 20,000 cows worth of milk from one place instead of 100 to 200 herds around the countryside, that's where it's going to go. But what it's like is playing musical chairs. I think that's a good analogy. The music plays, but when the 10,000 cow dairy comes in, they don't take one chair away. They take 100 chairs away. And to me, that's the best explanation for the total free-for-all that farm numbers are in right now. We talk about losing farms per day now, where we used to talk about per year. This is an amazing exit from agriculture, an amazing replacement that is not too different from the Main Street businesses being replaced by Walmart, Home Depot, and other big box retailers. I think that's a better model for us to be thinking about. Now, it's not just dairy. Uh, Let's think about uh, crop farming, for example. Instead of having a fixed demand for milk, we have a fixed amount of cropland, more or less. Mm -hmm. And you can take some in and some out, but by and large, the land is the land. And if you're going to cut it up into 500-acre farms, you're going to get a certain number of farms. If you cut it up into 10,000-acre farms, you're going to get a certain number of farms, but it's going to be a lot fewer. And if you cut it up into 10,000, the equivalent number of 500-acre farms have to go. Again, the musical chairs of winnowing out the family size, winnowing out the families, winnowing out the independent operators, and replacing them with big box farms. And I know one thing you've really been talking about a lot is this whole, and we've seen this, this isn't the first time we've seen it. We saw it in poultry, we saw it in the hog industry, somewhat in the beef industry, but it was always when people got concerned about it or when they raised a little hell about it, what the answer was, there's room for everybody and we're going to need those bigger players if we're going to keep the processors in the area. We've certainly seen that argument used with dairy, that we're not going to see the bottling plants and the creameries unless we have those bigger players in the area. In my time in farm management, two of the biggest changes I've seen are, number one, the shift in poultry broilers, eggs, turkeys, from something that many independent farmers produce to something that a very few corporations produce and leave no room for independent farmers. There are farmers, but they're called contract farmers. They don't own the animals. They don't make the decisions about feed or marketing. They basically provide space on a, on a rental basis for animals that someone else owns. People thought that was kind of tough, but at least it won't go any farther. Well, then later in my career, pork production, hogs, went the same way. Now there's, what, four companies that um, produce most of our hogs under these contract arrangements. At least one of them is not even owned by the, by, by the United States corporations anymore. Dairy, I think, is poised, or it's actually got one foot in that grave right now. The very largest dairies, the largest 5% of the dairies, produce over half the milk now. That's a big number. That means the 95% of the type that might be better for a lot of ways are producing less than half of the milk, and that number is shifting by the day toward that largest 
producers producing almost all the milk or all the crops. It's a, it's a trend that's a vicious trend, one I certainly don't support, and I'm sure that LSP does not either. I know you've done a lot of good work trying to get in the way of this, but uh, this, is a, this is a pretty large train coming down the tracks, and it would take a lot of effort and a lot of people doing the right thing to preserve the countryside just the way I wish we had preserved Main Street in rural areas. The big box phenomenon is the same either way. It takes out Main Street, takes out the countryside. I've heard people say, well, this is not so bad because the number of cows is not changing that much in dairy, which it's not. So we're not losing cows, but what we are losing is farmers. And that bothers me a lot. We're losing an entire generation of skilled farmers, good managers, who are being forced out in the same way the little hardware store was forced out by external forces that are too big to handle unless a lot of friends get in with them. That's what I'm hoping will happen. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I think, it it goes along with this myth that there's room for all sizes, that kind of, I think, is part and parcel of this myth, is the idea that you talked about we're not losing cows. We're these bigger operations often bring in to a particular area more cows than maybe there were there before. But people are confusing the idea that that economic value comes with each cow rather than each farm kind of thing. That is really a way that the mega dairy supporters or the mega whatever it is pork operations whatever they really go into a community and promote the idea that we are uh, going to be of economic value. We're going to be a, a great economic engine in this area based on the number of heads of livestock we're bringing in. And I think that that's missing a big element of what really does drive a local economy. You're exactly right, Brian. One of the great things I had when I worked at the University of Minnesota was I got to direct the graduate research of wonderfully smart students. And one of them was a young woman who did a series of interviews in a community, a rural community that lost its dairy farms, had a few very large ones come in, but their economy basically collapsed. And as she was interviewing the hardware store manager, she mentioned that there's still a lot of cows out there. And that hardware store manager said, yes, but cows don't come in here. And that just said it all to me. Cows don't go in the hardware store. If they do, it's kind of a disaster. (laughs) So um, they don't spend a lot of money. They don't generate a lot of economic activity when you've got other students I got to supervise said, well, who spends a greater percentage of their of their revenue in the local economy? And it turned out that the larger you got, the smaller percentage you spent because the highly specialized equipment was not uh, available at the local hardware store. Uh, you had to go, you know, to other states or other countries sometimes to get that kind of material. But the big thing is to remember that there's only so much milk that's going to get sold. There's only so many acres that are out there. Somebody coming in big doesn't create more demand for milk. They don't make more land. They use more land, and they soak up more of the demand for milk. Somebody else has to give that up, and that's pretty much a one-way door. It doesn't swing both ways, at least not in recent agricultural history. It doesn't swing both ways. You'll lose those skilled operators who can run the family size operations, and they don't come back. And that is a sad thing, but also it's a really tough thing on rural America. 
Um, now, you mentioned that perhaps a processing plant could be dairy, it could be, could be killing hogs, might be um, processing eggs. When they have that situation, they might say, well, the processing plant is running a little short of demand, and if we bring a huge operation in there, we can do that. That may save that market, that particular processing plant, but somewhere else it's going to have that same negative effect because the national demand is the same. The national stock of, of land is the same. Mm -hmm. By and large now, as you know, part of our history since the 70s and, and before have been a heavy reliance on exports that, well, we'll make some more and we'll just ship it to somebody else, but that is not working at all under the current administration. And it's not likely, I don't think, to um, continue to work. So what we're doing is musical chairs, and um, we might just as well face that and have policies that recognize that rather than dream policies that think there's room for everybody. There isn't. The size, there's the number of chairs set out there in that musical chairs game is fixed. Mm. And who gets a chair depends on how big the people are who come in. What role and how big of a role does policy play in all of this? And I guess we're speaking mostly of federal policy, although maybe there's some state policy too that's played a, a role in this. I think policy is pretty much the entire game right now if you don't want more of what we're getting. Now, one thing that's sometimes called policy is a hands-off. Just let it roll, mm -hmm. and that's where it's going to go. We just watch it happen, you know, get some good seats up front and watch the thing burn. Unfortunately, and I've had a long exposure to um, agricultural policy, both through myself and through some people from previous generations who have taken me under their wing, that we have tried to make our policies what I would call one-size-fits-all. The rising tide floats all the boats. So if we're going to add a... Um, 50 cents to the price of corn that a small farmer gets, we're going to add 50 cents to the price of corn that a large farmer gets. If we're going to add a dollar to a hundredweight of milk for one size farmer, we're going to add it to the others. That simply accelerates these trends. It doesn't even, it, it doesn't even keep at their current pace. It accelerates them for the obvious reason. The bigger you are, the more you get if the policies are based on how much you produce. But that was called fair. If your goal is to stabilize rural economies. Now you have to have policies that are specifically oriented toward promoting one size of farm over another. That's hard to swallow for some people, but you know the phrase, what you see is what you get, what you legislate is what you get. Now the federal has been the primary driver of farm policy, but for example, Maine, the state of Maine has a very successful policy for dairy that pays more for the first amount of production than it does for the last amount of production. And that favors the smaller herds. And they've been able to, to pretty much stabilize the number of dairy farms in Maine, particularly compared to what happened in surrounding states. There's room to do this. I'd prefer to see it done at the national level uh, because people tend to jump out of one state and into another. But uh, it can be done, but it requires a very different view of policy and its objectives than most of what I've seen in my career. Uh, in communities, there's a lot of fights over uh, when a mega operation comes in, whether it be pork or dairy or poultry, over what is the appropriate size for this community. But 
we're getting to the point of consolidation that is accelerating so fast that eventually the argument will be what counties or what states will even have a dairy or a hog operation or one of these operations. I think you had cited, you had done some math and figured out the way things are going now, how many dairies we may have in the United States at some point. I found that pretty terrifying. I know everybody loves numbers, so here come a few, (laughs) but uh, give or take, probably 35,000 dairy farms in the country now. That's going way down from what it was. But the largest dairy farms are in the 30,000 cow range. Now, if all the dairies reach that size, instead of 35,000 dairies, we'd need 300. And to put that in perspective, there's 3,000 counties, give or take, in the United States. So 90% of the counties, much less communities, would have a single dairy farm in them. And likely, the large ones would cluster around big processing plants, so there'd be even fewer than 300 counties that would have a single dairy in them. That is amazing to me. Now, in crop farming, the land isn't going to go anywhere, but people will talk about all the farmers they have out there, but when you actually look at the numbers, 40 or 50 might be ha- might be farming half the land in the county. And this is a trend that's quiet. It just kind of cooks along, and people see it as progress, and the market at work, and more efficient, and whatever they want to say. But it is absolutely devastating, and it's a one-way trip. I can see the time when we're going to talk about dairies being too big to fail. You put a 30,000-cow dairy filling one processing plant, and for some reason it goes out, has trouble, we're not going to let it go because the processing plant will have to close. Mm -hmm. They can't find another dairy the way they can find another 100-cow dairy to replace one that they lose. We're going to have to prop them up, put them in receivership, and operate them until they get back on their feet. It's going to be really different than it is now. And I just assume we didn't get there, to tell you the truth, but we're making very good progress. These are trends, like we said, are similar throughout agriculture, whether it be livestock or crops or whatever the, the commodity is. But it's particularly, I guess, it seems like we're particularly seeing a direct connection between the demise of these dairies and the communities that they're in because dairy is special in some ways, isn't it? It, it does draws on a lot more services and, and maybe talk a little bit about that. It's just a, just a fact that a, a dairy farm versus, say, a crop farm using the same number of acres, the dairy farm adds a lot of value and um, the people who are on that farm are working on that farm every day, buying supplies every day, selling things every day or every other day, depending on their pickup schedule for their milk, uh, as opposed to a a crop-type farm where six months out of the year, nothing is growing, and the farmer may not even be in the community anymore. The dairy is, to me, really the prize you want, the smaller dairy, if you want rural development. That's the most concentrated dose of rural America, of rural development of the of what we're likely to get in the upper midwest at least that's that's the that's the gold standard and that's the one we're losing at incredibly fast rate right now and a lot of the means lsp has had and that other groups have had including national farmers organization and farmers union and some other groups there's been a lot of uh, specific i guess near term as well as more long term fixes particularly looking at dairy right now because it's in it's in such crisis you know that's something that we're trying to propose on the state level as well as the federal level that kind of thing but i was wondering if you can address kind of 
the big picture of how in the long term we could address some of these trends and and maybe try to figure out a way that this doesn't become such a cyclical situation. People say this is something that's been going on for a long time. It's just the way it is. But it's not something that's been going on for a long time in the sense of the entry of the big box. Mm. That is relatively new. That transition from 100 cows being the big dairy to 5,000 cows being the big dairy. In the, that was five years ago. We didn't have a 5,000 cow category in the census. That's happening quickly now. And um, it's something that is going to need the attention of a lot more than the people in particular rural communities to address. And again, that's where groups like Land Stewardship Project are so important. You know, folks like me can cook up good ideas, and it takes a lot of on-the-ground support and promotion to change the direction from let it roll to this is what we want. That's a, that's a big change, even in the policy world, to go from whatever's happening there, you know, get out in front of the parade and lead it, mm-hmm. uh, versus carefully deciding what you would like and designing policies that will get you there. And that goes even beyond some of the, what I would call the save the farm thing, you know, because that turns out to be often one size fits all. Mm-hmm. We all need a higher price. Well, I'm not so sure that 30,000 cow dairy needs a higher price. They seem to be doing pretty well at the prices we got. Who's not doing well at the prices we have now are the smaller ones. So they're the ones that need a higher price. I'll agree with that. But if you're going to also give it to the larger ones, you're defeating the purpose of the thing. And that's the kind of way I'd like to see people thinking more about policy. If we want one kind of farming instead of the other, how can we get that? Because it's not going to happen on its own, not in any way I can see. Stewardship Project's farm crisis work, see landstewardshipproject.org. Are you or someone you know dealing with financial, emotional, or weather-related stress? Check out LSP's list of farm crisis resources at landstewardshipproject.org backslash farm crisis. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-722-6377. By the way, it helps us greatly if you can give Ear to the Ground a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast platform you utilize. Thanks to Laura Bargandale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening.